Hello, I'm Mike Baselli, your host for this podcast and the global community that has rallied around it. During this episode, we asked a public servant and one of healthcare's most influential leaders to spend time with our community in order to update us about the fast-moving coronavirus pandemic and his perspective and counsel how we proceed as a nation moving forward. Dr. David Shulkin was the ninth secretary of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, where he represented America's 21 million veterans and was responsible for the nation's largest integrated health care system with over 1,200 sites of care. Prior to leading the VA, Dr. Shulkin was a widely respected healthcare executive, having served in executive and physician leadership positions of national leading hospitals and health systems. Being named one of the 50 most influential physician executives in the country by Modern Healthcare and a top 100 physician leader of hospital and health systems by Becker's Hospital Review, I'm honored to have Dr. Shulkin's perspective and guidance shared with our community during these unprecedented times. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Dr. Shulkin, thank you for taking the time to join us on our podcast today and for sharing your perspective regarding the coronavirus pandemic. I'm glad to be with you. Well, given your national leadership position and deep experience as an executive operator in the healthcare industry and the perspective that you possess, I'm looking forward to learning from you today as to where we are as a nation with COVID-19, what healthcare personnel are going through, both clinically and administratively, and what is needed most at this time for the industry, and where do we go from here as a nation? But before we dive in, a bit of housekeeping. For our audience, while listening to any of our episodes, please make sure to join our online community at passionatepioneers.com in order to share feedback and ideas with our guests and to interact with the entire community. Lastly, subscribe to the podcast so you will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, Dr. Shulkin, I'd first like to start out by asking you where we are currently as a nation and what is needed most at this time to battle COVID-19. And for our audience, we are recording this episode during the week of April 6th. It's important for me to date these coronavirus updates due to how fast the situation is changing. So with that, Dr. Shulkin, I'll open it up and let you take it from there. I think that we are at a critical turning point in this crisis. We are seeing the potential peak of infections in areas that have been hardest hit, like New York and New Jersey. And while it still is early, it looks like the infection may actually be headed down. And if that's the case, I think that that is a roadmap for what we can expect in other communities that may follow. So I think that we have several more weeks left of continuing to practice the social distancing that has been so challenging for many people, but the good news is is that it appears to be working, and uh, if we stay disciplined, there may be an end in sight to the current crisis, and we're going to have to make sure that we are better prepared should the COVID infection come back again, particularly in the fall, 
uh, until we have either effective treatments or vaccines. And as the former secretary of the VA, Dr. Shulkin, and as a healthcare system executive operator, why does it seem that our nation has been so ill-equipped to handle a pandemic just like the coronavirus? First of all, there have been pandemics all throughout history, and that is what happens. These are events that only happen a couple times a century, so no generation ever gets used to dealing with these types of pandemics, and for each one that becomes their major event and crisis that challenges the economic world, the socioeconomic uh, structure, and the way that healthcare and uh, human behavior interact. So this is not unexpected. While you can have preparedness exercises, there's nothing like going through this in real-world time. And I don't think anybody, even two months ago, would have anticipated the state that we'd find ourselves in this country. So uh, preparing for something like this is probably uh, beyond expectations of what's realistic. However, listening to early warning signs and uh, understanding when the data suggests that one should be prepared and at least beginning to act is a different story. And I think that uh, the United States called itself flat-footed in not being able to do appropriate and aggressive testing. And that did lead to this crisis having a bigger impact than potentially it should have had. Well, let's stay on that, Dr. Shulkin. Um, actually, in a recent interview with Senator Lamar Alexander, he stated, quote, the United States will need to produce hundreds of millions of coronavirus tests in order to give parents and students the confidence they need to return to school in the fall. And he also stated that this will be a difficult task unless the government, Congress, and the private sector do everything they can to increase test production within the next month or so. But I want to open that up more broadly how important is testing for our nation writ large in order to get back to some semblance of normalcy across the country? Yeah, I think that testing, while I think people understand why it's important, they may not understand where it's most important to be used. I think early on in an epidemic or a pandemic, it's very important to know where the infection is, particularly if it's being spread with asymptomatic individuals. So. The fact that when the infection started to come to this country, we really didn't have testing widely available and did not know where the infection was in each community. It prevented us from isolating those that were most vulnerable and isolating those who were infected. And therefore, everybody was considered a potential infection. And that led to the type of social disruption and economic disruption that we've seen today. But testing is going to be equally as important as we begin to find our way out of this and back into normal life because, if, again, if you don't know where in the community the infection is and where it's not, then you can't really safely start returning to normal social interactions, which is what it will take to recreate much of the economic activity and school activity and social activity that we all look forward to. And so testing needs to be an important part of that in order for us to feel confident that 
we can begin the steps that it's going to take to return towards a normal life. And do you do you also believe that it is going to be difficult to produce millions of tests? And if so, why? What what are some of the bottlenecks creating the, the difficulty to create so many tests so rapidly? No, I do think that that should not be an issue. I think that you're now seeing not only the number of tests being produced that are going to be needed, but we're seeing different types of tests. And clearly the rapid testing that's now coming onto the line and will still take weeks to get out to be commercially available and readily available. But the rapid testing is the type of test that I think will help people regain confidence and and give them the results that they need in a timely fashion. I think that the PCR testing, which was the initial testing that was available, um, I think that uh, people would often wait five to seven days to get the results during that period of time. Um, we're uncertain how they conduct themselves. And so rapid testing uh, will be important. And then ultimately antibody testing so that people can understand that they have been exposed in the past or whether they've built an immune response to the COVID infection, but hopefully will be protected in the future. And a little bit ago, you were talking about preparedness. And yes, this is a generational thing and no one within our generation has ever experienced this and naturally so. But what were some of the things that you did at the VA plus as a hospital administrator to do preparedness exercises around a pandemic? What were some of those tactics? What were some of those exercises uh, that you did with you and your colleagues in leadership? Well, it's interesting. You know, human behavior is such that it takes some type of painful event or some type of systemic failure to make one begin to start preparing for the next ultimate crisis. And of course, the next crisis is always very different than the last one. So uh, the federal government really began to take emergency preparedness seriously at each of the agencies after 9-11. And uh, when 9-11 happened, many of the federal agencies, like VA, found themselves without detailed plans of how to continue to operate in times of crisis without airlines flying and um, with you know, key officials being located around the country on 9-11 and not being able to get back to Washington. So the VA stood up a very significant emergency preparedness operations and centers and plans for such a emergency. Now, uh, it was not necessarily planned that it would be a health emergency, but clearly I think we could all imagine crises happening in cybersecurity and attacks on the utilities, certainly traditional warfare, uh, but a public health crisis is, is certainly things that we had considered as well. And so the VA was much more prepared with dedicated staff, uh, mobile units prepared to be able to move to where of crisis are, um, plans to share both staffing and equipment levels, and we would do regular exercises. The VA had alternative sites that it could operate from in emergencies, if Washington were compromised, for example, and they were placed around the country, and we would go to those sites and prepare for it. There would be national coordination preparation as well. I was the only member of the Trump cabinet that was also in the Obama administration appointed by President Obama. And uh, shortly before there was a changeover of government between the Obama and Trump administrations, we actually had a joint pandemic exercise, which of a scenario not that dissimilar 
from what we're facing in this COVID crisis. So government was uh, thinking about these scenarios, but as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this, that actually being prepared for something of this magnitude and scale is something that I don't think anybody was necessarily prepared for. And where do you stand? I mean, we're, we're hearing a lot of information right now from Dr. Fauci and other leaders about social distancing. What I'm hearing a lot from our community is how do we find that balance between, yes, social distancing, but getting our economy back going again? What are your thoughts? What's your perspective there in trying to find that balance? Well, I don't think that there is a balance. I think that you have to be clearly on the side of social distancing. And, and uh, when we look towards uh, what the experience was in Asia, particularly in South Korea and Japan, but also somewhat in China. And we saw that they had uh, some initial periods with very severely restricted movements of their populations, that they were able to reach a plateau and then uh, significantly see a decline. And so if you look at the country of China with many more people than the United States, again, if their reporting is accurate, and I know there are people that question that, but they're still reporting uh, about 85,000 total infections, which is much, much less than what we're already seeing in the United States. So I think that with the recent data showing that Spain and Italy are also now peaking and declining with their social distancing and restrictions, I think that this is a path that we have to stick on uh, and hopefully is beginning to work here as well. That if we were to do something that was sort of only half-hearted, we may see this type of um, infection remain in our community for months and months and months, and that would be far more devastating to our economy and to people's um, behavioral um, mental health status than if we just uh, simply stick at the current rate and try to see if we can end this in the next couple of weeks. Well, and let's stay on, on that, Dr. Shulkin. I, actually, a question from one of our community members. He asks, what sort of recovery efforts will be necessary for our healthcare system once COVID-19 has reached manageable levels? I think that there's going to be a lot of people who are rethinking uh, the way that healthcare needs to perform as a system. That, that in the time of crisis, it really has exposed so many of the gaps and problems that those of us who work in healthcare were aware of, but now have become painfully clear. Uh, and that is, is that our private healthcare system for years, if not decades, has worked to take capacity offline. That means that hospital beds have been closing and systems have been joining together and then taking uh, services and consolidating them so that there was less available in the community. It happens to be a more efficient way to operate, but in times of crisis where you really do need um, extensive resources, they're simply not there. And that's why we've had to see uh, tremendous coordinations with states and the military and National Guard and private sector and the healthcare community and, and then federal systems like the Department of Veteran Affairs. So, so I think that there are going to be a lot of lessons to learn from this. I think clearly um, we're going to see a much greater reliance upon technology like telehealth and it's going to be much more 
um, interaction with people in their homes than there has been before, because relying upon people going to singular facilities like hospitals clearly had its limits. And so uh, I think that we're going to see a very, very different type of healthcare system. And again, in pandemics, uh, that's usually expected, that the world somehow changes. It changes the way people view their environment. It changes the way that people act, both economically and sociologically. And we're going to come back to uh, technology innovation that you just touched on in a moment. But one thing I also want to discuss a bit here, during your time while heading up the VA, your leadership helped tackle hepatitis in a population health approach. And given that coronavirus is also a population health crisis, what are some of the tactics that you implemented for tackling hepatitis while there that can be applied or thought about for this pandemic? Well, the first thing that we had when I set the goal to eliminate hepatitis C from the veteran population in the United States, the first thing that we had is we had accurate testing data on our veteran population. So the VA cares for nine and a half million American veterans and has a singular electronic health record. And so as secretary, I was able to ask how many veterans do we have that have a positive test for hepatitis C. And in a relatively short period of time, I got the answer. It was 163,500 veterans. So the second factor was, was that we now had a drug uh, that could effectively cure hepatitis C at 95% cure rates or higher. And so what I did was I sought the resources necessary to treat all veterans in the country. And once I obtained that support from Congress, financial support, I then was able to get a proactive program that would reach out to every veteran who had a positive test for hepatitis C, call them into their VA center, get them treated. And in a relatively short period of time, two years, Today, we have less than 10,000 veterans in this country who are infected with hepatitis C. So that is a very, very broad uh, implementation of a population health approach where you know who is sick and the system works to identify them, support them, treat them across the population. And with that approach, I think you can achieve a lot of great results. That's very different in two ways from what we're facing today in the COVID infection. The first, which we've talked about, is we don't know where all the people are that are infected because testing has been so far behind. And secondly, we do not have a evidence-based treatment to cure this virus. So uh, it, it is not, at this point, going to be an analogous situation, but I think that we know what it will take to ultimately address this issue. 
And thank you for that, Dr. Shulkin. Let's now turn a little bit towards innovation. Uh, you just touched on a little bit uh, in regards to telehealth. I am close with Anmon Johnson, the CEO of the American Telemedicine Association. A lot of wonderful work happening within the association. And, and we're starting to see more broadly the adoption and the explosion of telehealth and, and the red tape that's getting out of the way to allow for its expansion. Can you expand a little bit more on why telehealth is so important right now? And where do you see it being such a positive impact the most during a pandemic? Well, this pandemic was built for telehealth as a solution. We did not want people who felt that they may be getting sick with the infection to come in to crowded areas like emergency rooms, doctor's offices, and hospitals to sit in waiting areas and potentially infect other people. We also didn't want people who thought they might be sick but weren't to come to those same areas and potentially leave after they had been infected. So keeping people at home where they can be safely um, maintained and not expose them or expose other people was the ideal way to be able to manage this treatment. And yet, how do you get the type of care and expertise? You do want to have qualified healthcare professionals advising people. So telehealth provides that type of solution. And there are um, ways to actually listen to people's lungs and their heart, look in their throat and their eyes and their ears now using telehealth equipment. And so we've been able to uh, see how important this technology is. At the Department of Veteran Affairs, uh, we grew our telehealth program when I was there considerably. And uh, this past year, over 900,000 uh, telehealth visits were conducted among veterans, and uh, over 50 types of specialty programs are now available using telehealth. And it's been a tremendous success, particularly to reach people in parts of the country that may be rural or don't have the type of expertise in the local community, you can now connect people using telehealth with experts wherever they are in the country. And so I think it's a very important set of tools that many Americans have not had access to. And I hope that's one of the things that will change with this crisis and, and will remain with us as a new way of delivering care. And staying on the innovation topic, Dr. Shulkin, what are some other innovations either today or even in the future as, you know, the industry is kind of being rewritten as we speak? What are some other innovations that have you excited and that you see some uh, real importance and some opportunity to continue to innovate the industry? I think there's so many. I think when we've seen hospitals struggle with getting supplies, whether they're masks, or gloves or gowns or certain types of medications. I think the ability to do direct uh, supply chain delivery to hospitals using 3D printing or in having micro-manufacturing available is something that's going to be important. I think we're going to see a whole new technology boom to care for people in their home. I think that we're going to see tools out there to help with more rapid drug discovery um, and vaccine discovery because it's just taking too long to be able to get solutions to the market. Um, I think that uh, 
everything that works towards empowering patients, uh, digital tools are going to be increasingly important because people have seen that being in their homes, being separated from their traditional way of getting healthcare has not worked for them. So they've had to go directly to uh, places on the internet to get information, to get questions answered, uh, to get supplies delivered. So I think that digitalization of healthcare is going to be important. I think another area is going to be the interoperability of, of patient data. I think uh, being separated from your doctor's office and your hospital has also shown how it's important that the patient control their own data and that these not be locked in electronic health records and other people controlling uh, people's data. Um, and finally, I would say sort of the tools of predictive analytics and being able to, to uh, look through big data and do surveillance to make sure that we never get caught as blindly as we have with this pandemic, that uh, the tools that we have now with machine learning and artificial intelligence and prediction, predictive analytics tools, should allow us to do a much better job of identifying when and if the next crisis happens. Well, now let's take this more broadly then, Dr. Shulkin. How will the world be different after this pandemic and what should we be preparing for and what should we be expecting as a society? From my perspective, the world's going to be different because um, people understand how we're all connected together so that we were really very, in this country, growing very uh, apart from one another, very cynical, a lot of personal attacks on people and people looking at what separated us rather than what unified us. And what happens when you have an infection like this, it's clear that the infection doesn't discriminate on social stature, on income level, on political party, that we are all connected as a community together. And it also reinforces the role of government. While, again, people began to really tune government out because it was looking like it was just filled with partisanship and games coming out of Washington and people, you know, taking advantage of, of sort of their political strengths in Washington. Uh, we now see the real purpose of government, and that's to protect the citizens of the country in ways that no individual or even no state can do alone. And so I hope that this will be a reset of the way that we view public service, of the way that we view the importance of government, of how we all have to work together on a community-wide level as well as a national level to be able to address the challenges that frankly threaten us all, whether it's climate change or whether it is um, you know, social disparities, uh, access to care, um, so many things that no individual by themselves can address, but by working together 
as a country, we can have great opportunity to make big differences. Well, and speaking of serving our country, uh, you recently published a book. I'd love for, uh, we have a lot of innovators that listen to this uh, podcast and they're trained, and I know you advise a lot of them as well, but they're trained to give that quick elevator pitch for their startup. Why don't you give us the quick elevator pitch for your new book? Well, my book, uh, interestingly, is called It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country. And it's my personal story of being in the private sector. I was a healthcare CEO running a hospital system when I got a call from the Obama administration if I'd be willing to leave my job to come and to serve to help fix the VA system. And I felt as a citizen, how could I say no? The VA was in crisis at the time and I wanted to help. And so I left and I went to Washington to be a public servant. The book is about that story first working for President Obama and then President Trump. And it really was a very, very um, fascinating experience. At times painful, at times uh, so rewarding. But in sharing the story, I really do come to the point of view that given the environment that we have seen in Washington, that doing public service is something that I think was becoming so challenging because the politics of Washington interfered with the ability to really focus on what a public servant should be doing, and that is serving its citizens. And so we've seen this time and time again, uh, where you know people who have just been very dedicated to their country and doing their job get um, removed or 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 attacked for doing that job because it politically interfered with, with somebody's point of view. And we also now see with this COVID crisis how essential it is that we have people in government who are competent at what they're doing, who are experienced in handling situations like this, people like Dr. Fauci that have been there and know how to advise and, and, and give the country truthful advice. And if we don't continue to support and value those public servants and we allow them to be taken out through political conspiracies and political games the way that 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 happened to me, we as a country will suffer because we need those people in government. We need strong public servants. And so I hope that going through this crisis, we have a chance to rethink this and relook at it so that we can continue to support uh, good, competent people in government. My story is really very, very much a relevant story to everything that we're seeing today. And um, I hope that people will read it and experience um, what this is like, because many people are very surprised when they say, I can't believe that these types of things actually happen in our government, but they do. And it's important that citizens understand it. Well, thank you for that summary, Dr. Shulkin. And just staying on topic there for our community to be able to get a hold of you, uh, where are some contact points online where we can find you? Well, uh, first of all, I'm at Twitter at David Shulkin. Uh, I mean, happy to have people continue to hear my thoughts as I put them out. Uh, and my website of the company that I run is Shulkin Solutions. So Shulkinsolutions.com. 
Uh, and those are probably the best ways to stay in touch with him. Excellent. We'll leave those uh, in the episode notes as well as being able to find that information over at passionatepioneers.com. So thank you for that, Dr. Shulkin. And, and as we wrap up, thank you for offering your perspective and to update our community with the fast moving coronavirus pandemic. I'm incredibly grateful for your leadership and your dedication to our country over many years. We need you now more than ever. And please keep us posted how our community can be supporting you, Dr. Shulkin, and your work during these unprecedented times. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode.